Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Good morning. This is our seventh in our series that I've entitled Frustration, Failure, and Faith. We're talking about trusting God in trying times. We've looked at some interesting characters so far, and we continue to do that today when we look at the Old Testament character whose name is Naaman. His name means pleasant or loveliness. He was not a a Jewish person. He was a Gentile, uh, in fact, a Syrian uh, army general. And we're going to talk about him, but just by way of uh, review and introduction, let's talk, uh, let's, let's review what we mean when we talk about frustration. Uh, Miriam Webster defines frustration as a deep chronic sense or state of insecurity and dissatisfaction that arises from unresolved problems or unfulfilled needs. The online dictionary defines it this way, the feeling that accompanies an experience of being thwarted in attaining your goals. We're certainly going to see that today as we talk about uh, Naaman and as we read from uh, 2 Kings chapter 5 and then we will also look in the New Testament in Luke chapter 4 at a reference that Jesus himself made to Naaman and uh, and tie the two together and see what we can uh, what we can understand from that again when we talk about frustration it stems from the fact uh, of very often of the fact that we are uh, fallen image bearers of God. Uh, As you know from Genesis, we are made in God's image. That doesn't mean we're made in His physical image. God is spirit. He doesn't have those kind of parts. In fact, uh, God did not have a human body until the time of the Incarnation when the second person of the Godhead Took on um, took on human flesh. I didn't take on sinful sinfulness, but took on human flesh. He would die for the sins of his people at the cross. That was the necessity of taking on human flesh. But when the Bible talks about being made in God's image, it's it's uh, it's a reference to the fact that there are characteristics uh, of God that uh, that He communicated to man whenever He uh, made man and woman. Uh, we are rational beings; that is, we are able to think. Now, some days I'm some days I'm more rational than others, but included in in our rationality is our ability to uh, to be creative. Now, obviously, God is able to create simply by saying something he just speaks and it comes to comes to pass we're not able to do that but we can take things that already exist and uh, have ideas and create things from that. So in that way, we reflect. We reflect God. We're emotional beings. Uh, God uh, is a God of love. He's a God of hatred. Um, that is, He hates sin. And of course, uh, uh, we also are feeling type beings. God is volitional. That is, He can choose to do things. He can choose not to do things. And we have the ability to choose and to act. Uh, Now, because of the fall, our choices are limited 
particularly in terms of spirituality. The Bible says there's none who seeks after God. And so that's the reason we're dependent upon God taking the initiative in salvation to bring us to Himself. We are relational beings. Just as there is one God but three persons within the Godhead, so also we are relational beings. We have the need to give and to receive love. And we are spiritual beings. That's the way we are really different from the animals in the world and in that we worship God. Now, again, our fallenness is such that apart from uh, God initiating a relationship with us, our tendency is to go in the other direction and to suppress the truth of God. Uh, You'll recall from Romans chapter 1 that Paul makes the argument that God has revealed His uh, power and He has revealed the fact that He exists simply in creation. We ought to be able to look around and say, well, this didn't happen just by accident somehow, that there must be uh, some sort of uh, uh, something behind all of this and something that's wise because uh, we see the seasons, we see the regularity, and yet our tendency, and Paul points this out in Romans chapter 1, is to suppress the truth. And of course we turn to idols. Instead of worshiping the Creator, we worship the creation. And then very often they're things of our own creation. And uh, as a result, that is the reason that we need God to initiate a relationship with us, to come into our lives and uh, breathe the breath of life into us and cause us to want to seek after Him. So every aspect of our being has been adversely affected by sin and as a result of the fall. And we still, we still reflect God to some extent, even in a fallen state, because we're able to do these things. We're able to think and to feel. We're able to make certain choices. We're able to give and to receive love, at least on some basis. But the truth is, is that all of that is perverted. All of that has been adversely affected by sin. And so the reflection that we... Uh, produce of God is a warped or a distorted reflection of God. A major result of our condition as fallen beings, and even those of us who have come to know the Lord, that God in His grace and mercy has come to us and has saved us, and He is uh, transforming us slowly but surely into the image of His Son, even in spite of that, uh, one of the major results of our condition is that we're constantly seeking to make sense out of life. That's one of the things that we're going to see uh, in uh, in the story of Naaman today. But we're asking ourselves, who am I? Where did I originate? Where, where am I going? Why am I here? What, what does all this mean? Is, is this really all there is? And of course, those questions are answered uh, in our relationship with Christ. 
The background for our study today in 2 Kings chapter 5 um, is the 9th century B.C. Uh, this was during the time of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. In fact, in this particular case, in 2 Kings chapter 5, in particular, it involves the prophet Elisha. Remember, there, there are basically two kinds of prophets uh, in the Old Testament, that is, besides false prophets, but two kinds of true prophets that were writing prophets, people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Haggai and those kind, but there were also some non-writing prophets as well, and Elijah and Elisha fall into that category. The historical situation is that Syria, which is just to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel, was in ascendance at that time, and Israel itself, the, uh, the nation of Israel, was in spiritual decline. And so we come to 2 Kings chapter 5 and we uh, see Naaman trying to make sense out of life, just as we very often do. So let's just read a little bit and then we'll come back and uh, make some comments um, uh, as we go along. Notice it says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Now let's just pause there for just a minute and look at all the stuff that Naaman has got going for him right here. He is uh, the king that's mentioned here is a is a the king of Syria is is a man named Ben Hadad the second. But Naaman is a successful uh, career soldier. He has a uh, he's a general, uh, the commander in fact of the army of Ben Hadad. Uh, he is esteemed by the king. It says he's a great man. He was uh, held in high favor. He was apparently very courageous. Uh, he was liked by the king. And notice that God was working. Uh, to some extent, in the life of Naaman, but Naaman did not even realize that. It says the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now, what the Lord was doing, obviously, was bringing chastisement and uh, discipline upon the kingdom of Israel, and he was using Syria to carry out that discipline, just as God had, uh, had promised that he would do that kind of thing. So, this guy's got a lot of stuff really uh, good going for him. He's courageous, he's liked by the king, he's very successful at what he does. It just sounds like everything's just been coming up roses until you look at the very last phrase of verse 1 and it says that he was a leper. Now, when you read the word leper, uh, that all of a sudden brings all kinds of just terrible images to mind and terrible thoughts to mind because what is the prognosis in the Old Testament of somebody with leprosy? I mean, today, Hansen's disease uh, can be treated. But in the Old Testament... Uh, it was not treated. In fact, eventually what would happen is you would be 
uh, isolated. Uh, you would be put with other people who are lepers, and uh, you would be cut off from the community. So, apparently, uh, at this point, at least, Naaman's condition was a, he was in the very early stages of leprosy. Generally, leprosy would start by I'm I, I'm told by some sort of little breakout uh, on the face or on the arm or somewhere like that. So apparently, there were indications that he was in the early stages of leprosy but he was not to the point yet where he had to be isolated from the community so but when you think about the prognosis obviously a man like Naaman was not a fool and he knew that eventually things were going to get pretty grim and all the things that were so wonderful for him right now were going to be simply memories for him because he was going to be living um, an isolated life with other lepers eventually so just just and the social implications I mean the the things he's going to have to give up in terms of relationships just with his family with his with the king who apparently esteemed him uh, with his colleagues in the army just tremendous implications here Verse 2 says, Now the Syrians on one of their raids, and this was a raid uh, to the south down in Israel. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. You say, well, isn't that a coincidence? No. No such thing as coincidence. This is the providence of God. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Now the prophet in Samaria at that time is Elisha. That's who she's talking about. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now she was mistaken about this. Elisha couldn't cure anybody. Uh, God is the one who does the curing, but of course he would use Elisha as his instruments to do all kinds of miraculous things. But this little girl is expressing herself as best she knows how. And isn't it interesting too, the relationship that that, that she has with apparently with Naaman and Naaman's wife because uh, if you or I were some sort of uh, Israelite and we had been captured by the Syrians during some raid and had been hauled off to a foreign land and now we were serving at the general's house our tendency might be uh, to have a real negative attitude and we look at the guy and say well looks like uh, we know where he's going to be headed in the next few years he's going to be headed to the leper colony and it's good enough for him he ought not to be doing this kind of stuff and hauling people off into captivity that was not her attitude at all she was essentially blooming where she was planted and I'm sure working at the general's house was a was a good situation anyway even though it, she was obviously in a slavery situation but she seems to care about the people who were uh, looking after uh, whom she served and as we'll see a little bit later apparently that was not an unusual kind of thing because other people seem to care about the general as well. Alright, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, that's the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. 
Well, you know, I guess kings think they need to talk to the top dog in the other place. I'll send a letter to the other king to get something done about this when really the person that you need to talk to is the prophet, not the king. So uh, it says, So he went, taking along with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Now what do you suppose Naaman was thinking about? as he made that trip from Syria, probably Damascus, which was the capital. That would have been where the king was, and and he served at the privilege of the king. So he's making this trip from Damascus down to Samaria, where the the king of Israel would be. And uh, what do you suppose he's thinking about as he makes that trip down there? I suspect what he was thinking about is, I wonder wonder what's going to happen. I wonder if this is really going to work. I wonder if that little slave girl was right about all this. Boy, that's a that would really be great. But you know, I've been to just about every doctor everywhere in Syria, and nobody's been able to do anything. I've been to all these prophets and offered up all these sacrifices, and none of these gods of Syria could do anything for me. So I'm sure all these kind of thoughts were just flooding. When I get down, I wonder what the guy wonder what the guy will do and just so all these thoughts are just I'm sure flooding him now incidentally notice it says when he went talks about the things he took with him that 10 talents of silver we just read over that and say well what what does that mean that's 750 pounds of silver 6,000 shekels of gold is 150 pounds of gold now you know how much gold is, or you you may not know, but you you know that an ounce of gold is worth a lot. Well, this is 150 pounds of gold, so it's clear that Naaman did not go by himself. He was an important person, first of all, so he would have had soldiers going with him. But when you're carrying this kind of loot with you, um, you're really going to have an entourage to go with you to protect all of this. And notice also it says, uh, and he also took ten changes of clothing. So he's taking uh, uh, wardrobes down there with him too. Now, now why would he be doing that? Why would he bring all of that? Was, was that to offer some sort of gift? Was that uh, to to make a bargain? Was that some sort of bribe for the uh, for the God of uh, of the Israelites, Yahweh? Um, when you dealt with pagan gods, that's what you did. You had to bribe them, and you had to be real careful with pagan gods, because if you gave if you gave so much to this one over here, then the other one over here would get real ticked off at you if you didn't uh, if you didn't match that gift. So all of that's going through his mind. And remember, that's that's the framework apparently in which he's grown up, and that's the way he thinks at this point. And he's trying to make sense of all of this stuff that's that's going on. It says, He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So the king says, The reason I'm sending my general down there is king is so that you can cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? There's no way I can do any of that kind of stuff. And so it makes the king of Israel very suspicious. Notice it says, only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. In other words, he's just trying to find something else to pick a fight with him, with us so that uh, we'll, we'll go to war again. 
And so his reaction to that, uh, since Syria is such a uh, is gaining in power, is uh, is uh, is a sense of distress and mourning, and that's the reason he tears his clothes. Uh, it says, verse eight. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, "Why have you torn your clothes?" In other words. Why are you in such distress? Why are you in in mourning? Why is this bothering you so much? Let him, that is Naaman, come down, uh, come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, get the picture. So here's this entourage that arrives at the king's palace. The king gets all distressed. Somehow the word gets to Elisha. And Elisha says, you need to send him down here to my house. And so the entourage with uh, Naaman at the head of the column, I'm sure, makes its way down there. And it says, uh, Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him Notice, Elisha didn't even come out of the house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now, notice verse 11, because this reveals some things to us about what Naaman has been thinking during all this time. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he'd surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Here's a man who's used to folks bowing and scraping to him. And his expectations are that's what's going to happen. And particularly since Syria is in an ascending position and Israel is in such decline that uh, this prophet's going to come out. And I mean, I've got all this gold and silver, he would think to himself, and I've got these wardrobes. Listen, I can pay for this. Uh, Don't be sending the flunkies out here to talk to me. So you think about his expectations. They were based primarily on his position. I'm a person of importance. I need to talk to the top guy. And his probably his experience with the other so-called gods and the other prophets back in, back in Syria, that they would have bowed and scraped him. And here's Elisha doing none of that. Elisha just says, if you want to be healed, you need to go down to the Jordan River. You need to dip in it seven times and you'll be clean. It's as simple as that. And of course, now we see something else about Naaman here. It says he went away in a rage. Remember, what happens is we develop uh, expectations. Very often they're unrealistic expectations, but we develop expectations. And then when something happens to block those expectations, we become frustrated. And very often that frustration will show up in terms of anger or rage. Uh, And in this case, it was rage. He's just, Naaman's beside himself. 
And it's a wonder he didn't tell his army, said, burn this man's house down. But he didn't. This is all within the providence of God. Verse 13, but his servants came down. Now notice again this. This is something, remember we talked earlier about the... uh, about the maid who was serving in his house and how she seemed to be really concerned about the uh, about the generals and talking to the the general's wife saying oh that I wish the general could go down and see see Elisha down in uh, in in Israel because he could cure him of his leprosy here are some here are some other servants who have a similar attitude notice verse 13 but his servants came near and said to him my father is it a now this doesn't mean that he was their dad it's just a term of deference my father is it a great word the prophet spoken to you as he hadn't told you to do something hard would you not do it in other words the what if the prophet had told you to go take a city you you do that what if the prophet told you to tear down a wall somewhere and capture some folks. You'd have done that in a heartbeat. He said, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? He said, look, he didn't ask you to do anything. He didn't tell you to do anything that would be hard. He just said, if you want to be clean, you do this. So he went, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. Now, now let's pause here for just a second. We, we all, I know you've already read ahead and you know what's going to, you know what's happened. But think about the risk that Naaman has here. So he's, he's made his way to Samaria, then he's made his way to Elisha's house, and now he's got to make his way down through the thicket of the Jordan, down to the Jordan River, and he's got this entire entourage with him. And you can, you know, I don't know what he was dressed like, uh, but I imagine since he was in, uh, in essentially enemy territory, he probably had some sort of armor on. Well, let me tell you, once you get out to the Jordan River and the instructions from the prophets are that you're to dip in the river, uh, you don't walk out into the river wearing armor. So he's got to take his helmet off, he's got to take his coat of mail off, all this stuff, and probably just kind of get down into his skivvies with a little, with some sort of little tunic on top of that. And can you imagine the thoughts that must have been going through his mind at that point? What, you know, well, what if this doesn't work? I, all these soldiers out here seeing me do this, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the laughing stock of everybody because they've seen me out here dipping myself in the river. But notice what he does is what you and I need to do. What he did was he obeyed the voice of the prophet. We need to obey the word of God. And that's what he does here. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And what happened? And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. I I like to think of... I can imagine only what I would have been like if I had been in in uh, in Naaman's sandals. I probably would after I got my my coat of mail off and got down to my to the, whatever I was going to wear this that wouldn't cause me to get drowned out there in the uh, in the Jordan River and step out there in the Jordan and say for example if that spot that spot of leprosy were on my arm somewhere. 
And I dipped down in the in the Jordan, and I came back up, and I just I looked down at that spot, and boy, nothing's changed; it's still there. And I dipped myself again and again and again, and the sixth time I dipped myself and came up, and I looked at that spot, and that spot is still there. I'm thinking to myself, these people around me, my soldiers, must think that I am some kind of idiot. How am I ever going to get their respect again? But he obeyed the word of God. And when he dipped that seventh time and came up, that spot was gone. His flesh was like that of a little child. That is a miracle. But that was, that was only an outward miracle because there's another miracle that takes place and an even greater miracle than the miracle of being cleansed of leprosy. Now, Suppose that you had just experienced this yourself. What would be the first thing you'd want to do after this kind of experience? Well, of course, you'd want to, you'd, you'd want to go home and tell Mama, look what happened to me. I'm okay. We're not going to have to, we're not, I'm not going to have to move out. But besides that, what would you want to do? You'd want to go back and thank the man that sent you down there, the man that God used to, that God spoke to him and told you what you needed to do. And that's what Elisha does. Verse 15, it says, Then he returned to the man of God, that is to Elisha, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him. Notice this time, he is standing before Elisha. And he said, Behold, I know... I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. And let me tell you what, he had plenty of stuff he could give as, as, as presents. And, uh, and at this point we discover that Elisha was not a uh, your routine televangelist. It says, uh, but he, Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Notice, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. The other gods could do nothing. They were powerless. This is the one true God. There are two miracles that we see here. One is we see the miracle of the cleansing of leprosy. But one, the other, is the cleansing of his soul. Because, and that, you say, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe he's just enamored with the fact that he's, he's been cleansed of his leprosy. As we keep reading, I think you'll see that. Remember Romans 10.17 says, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 17, Then Naaman said, Well, if not, that is, if, if you won't take a gift... Please let there be given to your servant. Notice how he, he refers to himself now. He refers to himself when he speaks to Elijah as what? That, yeah, that's right. As a servant. It's not, uh, I'm the general and I'm demanding that you do so and so. No, 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 no. His attitude is entirely changed now. He is back with his helmet in his hand. And he says, if not, if you, if you won't take this, the general says, please let there be given to your servant, that is to, to him, two mule loads of earth 
For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord, that is to Yahweh. So here's a man who just previously, before he went down to the Jordan, the last time he was at Elisha's house, that it was clear that he was just filled with pride. And now the man demonstrates humility. And notice notice this picture of salvation. Uh, Naaman hears this appeal to reason. Well, well, well General, if the, and he hears that from his, from his own servants who care about him. General, if, if he'd ask you to do something tough, you'd have done that. What you got to lose by just going down there and dipping in the Jordan River? But then Naaman obeys the word of the prophet and God cleanses Naaman. Remember what uh, what the prophet Samuel had said to uh, to Saul when Saul was disobedience, a uh, disobedient obedience is better than sacrifice. And then Naaman glorifies the only true God. Now, Naaman clearly has a very limited vision, a, a limited view of who God is because for Naaman, having grown up where he did in, in a pagan culture, he associates God with a particular place. The God of Israel is greater than the God of, uh, of Syria or the gods of Syria. And clearly he's right about that. But this is, this is the same kind of attitude that you saw about the woman at the well that Jesus talked with in John chapter 4 where she was just shocked that, that, that a Jewish man would even speak to her there in the middle of the day out in the open where anybody could see. And then when he began to talk to her about her relationships with all the men that she had known, she said, oh, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she, she said, you know, now you folks, you Jews say that the only place that you ought to worship is in Jerusalem. But now we Samaritans say that you're supposed to go to Mount Gerizim to worship. And remember what Jesus' response was? He said, it doesn't have anything to do with the place. He said, what the Father is doing right now is He is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The place doesn't make any difference. But in Naaman's situation, his view of God was limited at this point, and essentially what he wanted to do apparently was he wanted a couple of mule loads of dirt so that he could bring the he could take the dirt back to Syria and he could he could make him a little place and put that earth, that dirt, uh, from Israel, since uh, Yahweh was the God of Israel, and when he bowed his knee, he wouldn't be bowing his knee on Syrian soil to any of those gods of Syria he would be bowing his knee to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. And we see that in it, uh, as, as it's carried out. Notice the next, uh, because he says, I'm not going to offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. And notice, Lord, there's the all caps. That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And then he goes on to say, verse 18, and now remember, he's speaking to Elisha. He says, In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master... Now, now when he says, my master, who's he talking about? Yeah, that's right, he's talking about the king. He says, when the king goes into the house of Rimmon, now that would be one of the false gods of of Syria. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. 
Let's pause there for just a minute. Remember, now, Naaman has a tremendous has experienced a tremendous change. Change. He's experienced a tremendous change physically. Uh, he's he's experienced a great change in terms of his outlook on life and what his expectations for what's going to happen as he gets older. But also, he's had a tremendous change spiritually in his life. But now think about it. Has Ben Hadad II had any kind of change? No, he's just up there carrying on business as the king of Syria. And so Naaman, though he's been changed dramatically, is going back to a situation where it's, you know, well, let's just get back to uh, life as usual, back to normal. And he says one of the things that's normal is that my master, the king, uh, he's not going to be enamored with Yahweh in any way. And what he's going to do is he's going to go into the house of Remen to worship. And when he goes in, I've got to be right there at his, at his arm. And I'm going to be there at his arm. And he says, when I bow myself in the house of Remen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And notice Elisha says to him, he said to him, go in peace. He said, when I bow my knee, I'm going to put my knee down on this dirt from Israel. But I've got to go back and do my job. And may the Lord pardon me. And Elisha is saying, you know, the Lord looks on the heart. He knows the change that's been made in you. So here is Naaman who has to continue in his commitments. Uh, Though his had a dramatic change in his life. His boss had stayed the same. What has Naaman learned regarding making sense out of life? Really that life only makes sense when we know the Lord God Himself. Now, on the second page of your notes, we see Naaman referred to by the Lord Jesus. And this is from... Luke chapter 4, and we're talking about trying to make sense out of someone else's life. Because there were a lot of erroneous preconceptions that people had about, uh, about Jesus. I mean, in Nazareth, and that's where this takes place in Luke chapter 4, this is where Jesus had grown up. Remember, He was born in Bethlehem, and then they had to make a... a, a an exodus, as it were, to Egypt for a period of time until Herod the Great died. And then when they came back, uh, they discovered that uh, things still didn't look so good down in the area of Judea. And so what they did was they went back up to Galilee, which apparently had been uh, both Mary and Joseph's home, and they made their home there in Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grew up. And people for some 30 years, well not 30 years, assuming that Jesus was around four, maybe five years old when he got, uh, when they moved to Nazareth and Jesus' ministry started at age 30, they have, they have seen him grow up and they, they've been around him for some about 25 years or so. And they're very familiar with him. Well, we, we know who this guy is and Let's see what happens in Luke chapter 4 because our familiarity with things can really foul us up trying to make sense out of somebody else's life. 
Luke 4, verse 16 and following, it says, And he, and the he there refers to Jesus, came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And that, now see again, you see the providence of God. The, the man who's in charge of, uh, of the scrolls pulls out the scroll, opens it up to Isaiah, and hands it to Jesus for Jesus to read. That, that was a common thing. The men would stand and then they would read a scripture. They would hand it back to the attendant. And then, uh, in this case, a visiting rabbi would make, uh, make some comments. He unrolled the scroll... Uh, so the, the he gave him the gave him the scroll of Isaiah, and then it says he unrolled the scroll. You see a deliberate action on the part of Jesus. He found the place where it was written, uh, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me." So this is a messianic prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped reading there. And then it says... Uh, and in fact, if he had kept on reading, it talked about uh, judgment coming. And this was not the time for judgment to come. That will happen when Jesus returns. But then in uh, verse uh, 20, it says, And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture, that is this scripture that I just read from Isaiah chapter 61, the first verse and a half, verse 1 and the half, first, half or so of verse 2, this prophecy that, that you know is a messianic prophecy, it's talking about the one who will come. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now when he said that, what was he saying? He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. I, I'm the Messiah. And all spoke well. Apparently they didn't really hear what he said at that point. And you know a lot of times that's the way it is with us when we're in church we kind of, things just sort of go over our head because we're thinking about you know, well am I going to get home in time for the football game? I hope there's not a big crowd at Country's Barbecue because uh, we're going to have to stand in line and we're going we're gonna to miss I, I don't want to miss the kickoff and you know, those kinds of things. So he says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they they realized what he'd said. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? This can't be the Messiah. We, We know him. Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. And this is not a proverb that Solomon wrote. This is a proverb, just a, a, a saying that was apparently prevalent at that time. It says, and here's the saying, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard, what we've heard that you did at Capernaum, and that was to heal uh, people, what we've heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We want to see you do some miracles. In fact, if you're going to claim to be the Messiah, you can prove to us that that you can uh, that you need that's what you need to do to prove it. And he said, 
So he knew what was going on. They didn't really believe him. They were very skeptical about him. And it's he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land, that is over all the land of Israel. And Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the widows of Israel. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. That was a Gentile land to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, the Gentile. And you see, the, the, the point that he's making is that when Messiah comes, he's not only going to be the Savior of those among the Jews who would trust him, but he is going to be the Savior of the, those among the Gentiles as well who will trust him. And it says, when they heard these things, well, think, think, think about it in a minute. The, the Israelites were convinced that they were the center of God's plan. And so here's a man who's saying, you know, well, you've, you've got to trust me. And remember, God is sovereign. He's going to do what He wants to do. During that time of Elijah, there were a lot of widows that Elijah could have ministered to, but God didn't send them to any one of them. That's back in Ahab's day, the wicked Ahab. That, that nation was in decline. So what did God do? He sent Elijah to a Gentile woman, widow. And in Elisha's day, the nation of Israel still in decline, spiritual decline. What did God do? He didn't cleanse any lepers through Elisha in that day, not any in Israel. But He did cleanse somebody who was a Gentile. In fact, He was a sworn enemy of Israel. It's kind of the same idea that uh, you know that was that was what got Jonah so irate was because God was going to show mercy on the uh, enemies of uh, of his country. Verse twenty eight says, "When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath." Now, notice just a few minutes ago, it says they were marveling at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And now they're filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Well, now that's a, that's a big change. But passing through their midst, he went away. It was not his time, obviously. My time has not yet come. He was misunderstood. He was misinterpreted. They had... They had Jesus all figured out in their minds. They had His life figured out. They had Jesus figured out. They were wrong. They were wrong about life in general, and they were wrong about Jesus. And it's wonderful that God is in control of this situation. But we understand why they could not understand. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
So it's not surprising that that was, that was the attitude. Now what do we conclude from all of this? I point you to the uh, application section of the, uh, of the notes and we'll just look at them in, in whatever time we have left here. Because we are rational beings, it's normal for us to try to make sense out of what's going on around us in our lives. But it's also important for us to remember when that when we do that, that our knowledge and our perspective of what's going on is very limited. You and I are never going to have all the all the facts about what's going on around us. It's therefore possible to misunderstand and to misinterpret what actually is going on. And that's what we just saw in Luke chapter four. Secondly, the Lord God seldom operates the way we expect. Uh, Naaman's understanding of both the situation and the Lord was very limited. He, he had a deeper spiritual need of which he was completely unaware. It's important for you and I to trust Christ to operate in whatever way He chooses. You know, God doesn't ask me for advice. And He doesn't ask you for advice. And He doesn't need advice from any of us. But there are times when God operates and does things differently. You know, uh, sometimes... well, you look, you look at the you look at the scriptures, and the way sometimes he would heal people. Sometimes he would heal people by touching them. Sometimes he would just tell people, "Say, take up your mat and go on," and they were healed by his word. Other times, he would, uh, you know, somebody came from a, a distance and said, "You need to come over here to the house, uh, to my house, which is in the next city over over there, and uh, come over there and he- heal my daughter because she's she's on her deathbed." And Jesus would say, your daughter's fine. Your son's fine. Just go on home. You'll see. She's fine. He's fine. He could heal from a distance. So we need to trust God to operate. We need to trust Christ to operate in whatever way that He chooses. It's a natural tendency on our part to try to protect ourselves, And that very often makes it difficult for us to hear what God says. Notice, notice and remember that Naaman's pride almost led, led to the rejection of the only real hope that he had. He was so ticked off by the way he was treated that he was, he was going to walk away from the only solution that there was for him. And yet when he humbled himself before God, and I might add before his troops, He received his cleansing for his skin, and more importantly, he received the cleansing for his soul. It's important that even a renewed mind be submissive to the work of the Spirit of God. And it's a constant battle for us, even as believers. You know, we we are to... We are to set our minds on the things above, not on the things below. And then we need to trust God to make sense of life. Notice the the passage from Isaiah chapter 55. We need to real, recognize a biblical perspective. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Think about that passage from Romans uh, chapter chapter eight, just just to that to, to the right of that section. 
that right column of your of your notes in the application section. Notice verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the joy that will be revealed to us. We need to recognize the biblical perspective. We need to also respond with patience. We need to trust God's promises. We need to trust in God's presence. Notice the, uh, in that same passage from Romans chapter 8, it talks about in verses uh, 23 and following, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, the Spirit of God is dwelling within us. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. What is that? The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. We wait for it with patience. Are we, are we trusting in God's promises? Are we trusting that in the fact that He is going to do what He said He would do? And then notice verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. We need to trust in God's promises. We need to trust in God's presence that as we wait for Him to work. Recognize the biblical perspective that God's ways aren't my ways always. That God's thoughts aren't my thoughts very often. Need to respond with patience. God's not in a hurry. I don't need to be in a hurry. Trust in His promises. Trust in His presence. And then finally, rest in God's certain purpose. Notice the passage from Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice, life only makes sense when we look at it only in the light of the big picture of what God is doing. We can be confident of God's sovereignty. Notice verse 28 of Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We can be confident of that. And we can also show the courage to pursue God's will as we accept God's will as good and acceptable and perfect for us. That enables us to accept those as well who are all around us. God help us to see this. It's a great story of, uh, of Naaman. And again, the idea was when God doesn't do what we expect, He may not do what we expect, but He's always at work. And He's at work in our lives to transform us more and more, slowly, deliberately, very often imperceptibly, into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.